This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. A lot of movement, it feels like, guys, this week in the world of sports. Movement or perceived movement or pressure to move. We're going to get into all of that in a minute. Uh, Also going to talk later on in the show with a new owner in the WNBA, the president of the Atlanta Dream, and also going to catch up with a guy who's about to get a big promotion out on the West Coast, the Golden State Warriors, the incoming president and COO. He's a longtime executive with the team. Big shoes to fill. We'll get into all of that with Brandon Schneider. But first, staying on the West Coast, staying in the Bay Area, in fact, the Oakland A's uh, Major League Baseball basically saying, all right, guys, you can start to look around because you're not getting a deal done. And that deal, of course, would be for a new stadium for the Oakland A's to play. Let's hear what Dave Cavill, he's the president of the Oakland A's, had to say on the A's cast. You know, the commissioner coming out and really directing us to start looking at some other markets um, while in parallel still pursuing the waterfront opportunity in Oakland. And I think it's in, indicative of the fact that we're running out of time, that our current lease only goes through 2024. The Coliseum is at the end of its useful life. And we're just not making quick enough progress on the downtown urban location at the waterfront. And so, I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's a big deal. It's something, obviously, I know that our fans are concerned about, what it means for the future and our future in Oakland. But it's also just a realistic assessment of where we are. And hopefully this can be a way to really come to some type of conclusion of this. That it's been going on for almost 20 years. And that's Dave Cavill, the president of the Oakland A's, speaking on the Oakland Athletics A's cast. And of course, uh, there are pals. You can listen to the A's, the Oakland Athletics, on Bloomberg 960 in the Bay Area. So, Lynchy, I turn to you. Is this a negotiating tactic? Could we see the A's leave? Like, what's going on here? Well, we thought it was a negotiating tactic when the Raiders were looking yeah. for a new stadium. Of course, they've, they've already went down to L.A. for a while, and then they came back. So that would be your first reaction, obviously. But I just feel so bad for the people of Oakland who had the Raiders yanked out from Vegas, the Warriors across the bay, now over in San Francisco. And they're pretty soon, realistically, by the year 2025, could be without one single major league franchise. And they've had some great, great clubs and great champions over the years in Oakland. Well, and Michael Barr, I mean, it's fascinating to me because this is a great, vibrant area of the country. And, you know, despite what we've heard about people leaving California and leaving the Bay Area a little bit in the course of the pandemic, this is, as Lynchy alludes to, a very strong fan base. This is a storied franchise in many ways. 
both from long ago, but more recently, Moneyball, you know, all of these things that swirl around the A's, and yet they just can't seem to, to get it together. What do you make of it? Well, I, at first, I was thinking, well, maybe this is just a negotiating tactic until MLB said, hey, the Oakland Coliseum is not a viable option for the future vision of baseball. And I'm like, whoa, it's this thing is going down. I hope they build a new stadium in Oakland. Maybe that's what they need, you know. But, but like you said, I mean, it's been such a storied franchise. And remember the football team, it was the Oakland Raiders. Then it became the Los Angeles Raiders. Then it went back to the Oakland Raiders. And now they're in Las Vegas. And, and I just want Oakland because I, I really like that town, and that they have at least one major league sport. Yeah, and meanwhile, you know, it was interesting to to watch this play out on Twitter because, of course, the question is, okay, well, where would they go? Uh, We were joking with our producer, Charlie Vollmer, about, well, Vegas is obviously always answer number one, and and clearly the the path is well-trod between Oakland and Las Vegas, as you just mentioned, Barr. But, you know, there are other towns. You think of a Nashville, you think of some other places in the south, the southwest, where, you know, baseball continues to be, uh, pretty popular. I can't imagine them ending up in, in the Northeast anywhere, but, you know, some sort of Sunbelt reload, you know, could be in the A's future. So we'll certainly keep an eye on that uh, and whether this really is just the next step in getting getting a new stadium. I do think the the optics of it are important here, you know, and, and you know, keeping – Keeping a tradition alive is, is certainly on the mind of, of Rob Manfred and other folks at, at MLB, but got to get it done. And, and you know, we're going to talk a little bit later on in the show when we get into the story of the Warriors about that move across the bay that you mentioned, Lynchy, and you know what the Warriors got to do, had to do. It was the first privately financed arena in the NBA, and it's been, by all accounts, incredibly successful. So, you know, it's a different world when it comes to to building stadiums and arenas, and we'll keep an eye on that. Well, stadiums and arenas, and stadiums specifically, big American football stadiums, and even some overseas are going to be filled, we hope, this fall. And now we know who's going to be playing and when. Who knew... Mike Lynch, that the release of a schedule could become an all-day media event. It was this week. And you actually know before it comes out who your opponents are. Yeah. Because it's a rotating schedule every year. You know you're going to be who you're going to be playing. It's just a question of which week and will it be a primetime game. And this is just, I mean, I was on an, an airplane when they, they released the week number one. And people were just buzzing on the airplane, just talking. I said, oh, I can't believe that you know, the Patriots are opening up against the Dolphins. When is Tom Brady coming to town? Obviously, being a Boston guy and Brady coming back to Foxborough on October 3rd, that game stuck out to me as uh, I'm, I'm salivating already. Well, and I think that the nation will be tuned in for sure. Uh, there was a great uh, tweet that I saw an illustration bar of, you know, Brady in his Bucks uniform, you know, pictured or drawn from the back, you know, looking at the the Gillette Stadium scoreboard. I mean, all eyes will be there. The other interesting thing to me, and, and you brought this up as we were talking before the show, is all eyes, at least on Thursday nights, mm-hmm. are going to be on Amazon. That's how we're going to be watching these games, the, the Thursday night football games, uh, starting opening week with the Seahawks. Maybe that's just a coincidence that the Seahawks and Amazon, they share a hometown, but, you know, there they're going to be. 
got to stream it to watch it. Well, let me let me add something. They're they're going to have eleven games, but that first game that they're going to stream, I believe, is like October. Like oh, got it. October there you go. Seventh or whatever it is, but they have eleven games, and I've, I said this earlier: is that if you have a television that's programmed already to have this app, it, you're in business. Because if you're an old fuddy-duddy like me, I say, "Well, how do you download this thing here?" It's like, well, the set already came with it, so now I'm good. I'm all set to watch. And, and with week one, my you know I'm a diehard Lions fan. My wife is a diehard 49ers fan. And that's the week one game, the Lions and the 49ers. Uh, if uh, I need to sleep on a couch, guys, I'm going to call you and, <laughs> and let you know. Because I know how this is going to go down. We're going to be on opposite sides of the room and throwing popcorn. And i got to say something else. When I'm watching the, the schedule come out, and I said this earlier before we went on the air. Look, I'm looking at it as like, all right, what game am I going to bet on in week one? Listen, la, 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 la. And I go through this through the entire schedule, and I will admit, between betting and, and, and being an avid fantasy football player, I love it. It's everything, like you said, Jason, is an event in the NFL. Well, Lynchy, the other interesting note from an expansion perspective, and this is not new, but renewed, I should say, because mm-hmm. last year, obviously, 2020 was very different. The NFL back in London, two games uh, will be there uh, in the Tottenham Hotspurs home stadium. It will be rocking. I've talked to a bunch of friends in London over the years who have gone to some of those games. They are huge events. Um, Mm -hmm. Folks in the UK, they love their football, but they also love American football. Uh, The Falcons are going to be playing one of those games. The Falcons and the Jets, I'm not sure if... You know, many people other than Falcons and Jets fans care that much about that. <laughs> but um, I say that as a Falcons fan. But, uh, you know, you are going to see renewed interest, as it were. And the NFL loves that partnership of going uh, to London. I think they would love to have a team over there. But, you know, logistically, Lynchy, I, I just don't see how it works. No, it doesn't. I think the, the, the ultimate goal here for the NFL is exposure and merchandising. Yeah. Um, every year when they go over there, more and more people are wearing uh, National Football League jerseys. Um, and one of the big things over there, too, is indoctrinating them to American football. The teams usually go over a little bit earlier, and on Friday, uh, they usually have a clinic at one of the parks for some for youth football, teaching them how to kick, how to throw, how to run, how to pass. And, and you look into the stands while the game is going on, and it's amazing how many different jerseys the people are wearing of, of National Football League teams. I think that's the ultimate goal for the National Football League logistically. I just don't see how you can have a team, you know, in the, in the like, let's say the AFC, East, 3,000 miles away from uh, MetLife Stadium or Foxborough or uh, down in Miami. It just logistically, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, until you can teleport back and forth, I think yes. this may be uh, <laughs> the, this may be a tough thing. But but your point about the merch is real, especially when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other interesting merchandising opportunity I was thinking about as I was looking at the schedule is you've got all these new quarterbacks coming in. You're going to have some yeah. great quarterback uh, matchups, and obviously Mr. Brady isn't going away uh, anytime soon because he's going to live forever. But you know these new you know these new players uh, and especially quarterbacks coming in, Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence and and whatnot. Uh, you have to think that those jerseys are going to go and going to go fast. Uh, you know 
if they start winning, but if they're not, then there'll be a cautionary tale all over again. I'm Jason Kelly, along with Mike Lynch and Michael Barr. Today, really excited to be speaking with the new Atlanta Dream co-owner and president, Suzanne Abair. She is a Bostonian. She's an Atlantan part-time now. This is a huge purchase in many ways, so significant. We're going to get into all of that. Uh, Suzanne, really, really nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. So let's get right into it. What's the business case for buying this team? Investing in women. I think it's, you know, we all saw, particularly it was highlighted through the NCAA tournaments, that there is such a disparity between the level of investment between um, men's sports and women's sports. And um, for we've been proponents of women, Larry and myself, in, in our other business uh, at Northland have long been proponents of investing in women, and we have women in many of the senior leadership roles in our organization, and this just seemed like a natural fit for us, um, which was invest in women. It's not betting on women, it's investing in women, and we're investing in this team for the long haul, and we're, we're fortunate and excited to have Renee Montgomery along with us in the ownership group because... She's a great example of what investing in women looks like and how successful that can be. How has Senator Kelly Leffler's exit, she was the previous owner of the team, changed the business opportunity landscape for the team? I think I'll say this. You know, we we only look forward, um, not back. And so from our perspective, we're looking at how can we take this team and and build it into the model franchise within the W. And so what is that going to take? It's going to take investment. It's going to take some time. Uh, It's going to take putting dynamic leaders uh, in charge of both the business and basketball side. And it's going to take reaching out to the community of Atlanta um, at in terms of outreach, in terms of both engagement. Um, And so that's really our plan. Build the model franchise in the W, embrace Atlanta, the culture of Atlanta, and we really believe that if we do that, that Atlanta is going to embrace this team right back and that we will win both on and off the court. And I should add, in case anybody is not familiar with the situation, at the time – then-Senator Kelly Leffler, who was the previous owner, kind of got into a spat with the players over their support over social justice and Black Lives Matter. So anybody not familiar with that story, that's what that is all about. I was just going to say, I think with respect to the players' social justice platform, we fully embrace the players and the league's social justice platform and that is actually one of the reasons that we were excited to invest in the W um, and to acquire a team within the WNBA because we are um, an unabashedly progressive organization and our, our social justice outlook um, and activities align squarely with the leagues and with the players of the Atlanta Dream. I want to follow up on Renee Montgomery because she's a trailblazer. She's a first. She's a former player. She's now a part owner. What will her day-to-day role be with the team, and how heavily are you going to lean on her judgment, opinion, thoughts, et cetera? 
So Renee is a is already um, and uh, has taken an active role uh, on the business side, um, and essentially with respect to marketing and community outreach. And so that's you know as we go into this season, our inaugural season for us as the ownership group, she'll be focused on that. Um, you you can if you look, you'll see her hand already in our uh, new creative agency that was announced yesterday, which is Poppin Creative. Um, our new Do It For The Dream um, ad campaign, um, you know, our all-female broadcast team that was just announced this week. And, you know, I've been working very closely with Renee on all of those initiatives, and she's just been a great partner and has hit the ground running uh, really in a way that has really energized all of us. And we look at what we've done actually in those 69 days, you know, acquiring a team so close to the season starting was not ideal from a, you know, get up to speed standpoint, but the opportunity was there for us. We, we jumped at it um, and we're pretty excited about what we've done. And Renee has really been an integral part of all of that. So Suzanne, help us understand, because I feel like there have been some twists and turns in, in the evolution and, and the growth of the WNBA as it relates to the NBA. Obviously, the the commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, has come in and and made some changes in terms of the visibility of the league, in terms of the operations of the league. How does it become more, the WNBA that is, and and on a team-by-team level, more economically viable? How do you, you know, taking the long view, sort of grow this as an investment? So first, I would say, um, Commissioner Engelbert has done a tremendous job um, in raising the visibility of the league. And, you know, if you look just even going into this season, uh, you know, there's a new uh, game changer partnership with Google. There was a new uh, streaming uh, partnership with Amazon Prime for games this season. I think one of the things that Kathy has really done is understands that the league itself needs to elevate its profile, needs to grow its top line, and that teams themselves have to do that as well. The, I, I, I would say if you look at where the NBA was in their 25th season, and that's where the WNBA is right now. We're about to kick off our 25th season. The NBA in year 25 was not what it is today. And – you know, I think that Kathy has done a tremendous job, and I think this is going to be a pivotal season. I think there was so much that has happened over the course of the last year in elevating the league, in elevating women's sports, elevating investment in women's sports. And I think that Kathy has really put the league on the, the perfect trajectory for this league to continue to grow over the next 25 years. And we're excited to be a part of that growth over the next 25 years. So, Susanna, if I can, I, I want to talk to you a little bit, um, sort of following on that, but but taking it in a slightly different direction. You know, you guys are, are real estate investors, and, and you have come to understand, I believe, you know, in, in a pretty intimate way, a market, you know, I'm from Atlanta originally, as you know, so it's a dynamic market, uh, to say the least. What have you learned from being a real estate investor, both locally, but also nationally and internationally, that you apply in, in this case? Like, what, what are the sort of the business crossovers or marketing crossovers or operational crossovers? 
I would say the most important thing is know your market. Hmm. Right? I think as you hit on it, you know, in our real estate business, we operate in 12 states and so within those states in multiple markets. And the most important thing is to, to know your market. Um, and be able, you know, it, 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 you can't be a one-size-fits-all. What we, what we may do on the real estate side in Boston may not work in Austin or in Charlotte, and what we may do here in Atlanta, you know, may not work out in Tucson, Arizona. And I think the most important thing is understanding your market and, and really engaging in your market, and particularly when it comes on the sports side because – you know, you're you're selling a product. Obviously, you're you're putting a uh, you know you're selling an entertainment product, um, and if you want to succeed, you got to have fans in the seats, and that I think really you need to know who your target market is and how to reach them. And I think that that is the same across any business. Um, so I think that's probably the most important. I want to go back to something we were talking about in the beginning about the pay discrepancy between men and women. Very quickly, I'm going to tell a story. I had to be about four or five years old. Both my mom and dad worked. Now, my mom was also a World War II veteran like my dad. And here comes payday. And back in the day, they bring back the paychecks. And a little four-year-old kid goes to his mom and says, well, you must make less because you're a woman. And then my mom said, oh, hell no. We got we got to have a conversation about this. So, and I'm going to ask you, in honor of Tessie Barr, to uh, another woman who I'm just talking to right now, Suzanne Abair, why in the world are we having this problem of the pay discrepancy between men and women? Well, Michael, um, first of all, I, I, I applaud you for owning up to that story on the air. I think that's great. Um, you know, the issue really is, is one of valuation and, you know, how we value and how, you know, how sponsors value women's sports versus men's sports. And, and there's a huge disparity there. Uh, and it needs to change, quite honestly, because what that if you were to look at, um, you know, viewership and you were to look at viewership for the NHL versus the W, um, you might see that viewership is, is actually very similar, but the, the sponsorship dollars aren't valued the same. And that's just wrong. I think if you were to look, the W was, you know, as a league, was one of the few leagues last year where viewership was actually up during the pandemic. Um, and so it's, we need to do a better job in terms of how we sell the league we need to do a better job in how we convince sponsors that um, you need to look beyond the viewership as well because people are going to want to invest in women. I think the tide is turning, and I, I believe that sponsors are going to want to be involved in what we're doing. And so we need to get to a point where, you know, Forbes released the top 10 pay, you know, highest paid athletes, and there was not one woman in that top 10. That needs to change, and that's what we're all about when we talk about investing in women. It's about making that change.
Suzanne, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. We know it's a busy day. And as you said, new owners have a lot on their plate. So we're really glad that you were able to spend some time with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure. Today, delighted to be speaking with a big executive from the Golden State Warriors, Brandon Schneider. He is currently the chief revenue officer. Soon, he will ascend to be the president and the chief operating officer. Brandon, really nice to have you with us. We're talking at this pivotal moment in, as always, a very interesting season. It's been an up and down one on the upswing uh, for you guys as you go in. But from where you sit, um, what has the season been like from a business perspective? And like no other. Yeah. Um, so first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, super excited to talk to you guys. It's been it's been a long haul, right? I mean, our, our world came to a screeching halt. And when I say our world, I don't mean the Warriors. I mean all of our world. Um, you know, last March, and and for the NBA, it was when Rudy Gobert tested positive, and Adam Silver announced we were suspending the season. I think you know at the time, none of us realized how long that would last. And you know, we've been through been through a lot. I think for us. Um, you know, we've, we always try and be proactive and innovative and, um, you know, realizing what, what we were dealing with with COVID. Our, our owner, Joe Lacob, actually has a master's degree in epidemiology. And so early on, we created a task force um, focused on how we make Chase Center the, the safest building uh, in the world. And we've been focused on testing, testing every fan. So, you know, fast forward to a few weeks ago, we finally um, were able to welcome fans back to Chase Center. And, and what's unique is every fan that goes, we had, we had a game last night, every fan that steps to the Chase Center is either fully vaccinated or has returned a negative COVID-19 test that we provide at, at our expense within 48 hours of the game. Um, so so that's the, the location-based entertainment aspect of it. Um, and then the other thing when you, when you ask about our business is, you know, we, we've tried to use this time in a proactive way to say, look, um, the world's changing and, and hopefully we're going to get back to you know, the new normal here and not too long with vaccines taking hold. But, you know, what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? Um, not just now during this COVID period, but things that'll that'll persist, um, you know, after COVID's hopefully gone. So it's been a it's been a very interesting year and we're looking forward to uh, to that post COVID era. We had some fun on Monday going through the Forbes uh, top 50 most valuable sports franchises, and we were all talking about, we were marveling how you made it into the top 10. I think it was number six ahead of the Los Angeles Lakers. How did you get from there to here? Mike, it's a good question. So, you know, those those rankings are, are fun for everybody to see, I think, because, you know, these, these teams don't change hands very often, and that's when you really see the value of a team, right? I mean, it's, it's really worth what someone's willing to pay for it. For us, it's kind of different because our owners, Joe Lake, Peter Goober, and, and and the group, have no intention of ever selling the team. So it's 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 a interesting talking point, but not not something we focus on. Um, you know, I, I think when you when you think about the growth of our business over the last you know ten years, call it. Um, I, I think it's it's really you know it starts with the basketball team, right? Um, you know, Joe Lake and Peter Goober bought the team November twelfth, two thousand ten. Who's counting? Um, I remember the day, I remember the day vividly. Um, and that's really when everything changed. And, and as we built up our basketball team, you know, that's, that's kind of the first step, right? I mean, we made five straight finals, first team in the NBA to do that since 1966. And that was the Celtics back in those days, there was eight teams and I mean, obviously they had incredible runs, but you know, in this era, it's just really, really hard to do. Um, the only team, uh, the last team in any of the four major sports in this country to do it uh, was the Islanders in 1984. So it's it was unprecedented, and 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 you know for us our focus. So we, we want to 
uh, win championships, of course. I mean, that's that's where the Golden State Warriors. That's what we want to do. That's what sports teams want to do. Um, you know, we want to want to uh, engage the community in the right way. I mean, we you know we live and uh, and work and play in the Bay Area. Uh, everyone supports us so well, and so we really feel. Um, I don't even want to say an obligation. It's something we want to do, but to to, to reciprocate and and do the do good things to help you know people in the community because there there is that need, especially now during COVID. Uh, and then we look at it as engaging fans. You know, I've said it a couple of times, but that's really the lens that we look at. And, and you know, we're location-based entertainment. So at Chase Center, you know, we invested $2.1 billion privately financed uh, arena. And it's not just the arena. Uh, Chase Center sits in Thrive City. Um, it's a 12-acre site that we purchased, you know, private property, uh, 580,000 square feet of office. So Uber's building there or is built. They haven't moved in yet. Um, their, their world headquarters in Mission Bay um, here in San Francisco. Uh, we've got about 25 retail locations that are filling a lot of restaurants. Um, so it's, it's all part of that experience. So making that an incredible experience for our fans. But, you know, the reality is the majority of our fans will never go to a live Warriors game um, because they live in the Philippines or they live in China or Japan or, you know, pick a country internationally. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to how to engage those fans worldwide, whether that's through, you know, this day and age social media um, and a lot of other uh, a lot of other avenues. So, you know, the way we always think about it is if we if we do those three things, you know, that's going to that's going to lead to our business continuing uh, uh, to grow. So that's that's really, um, you know, maybe that's oversimplifying it, but that's that's how we've looked at it. And, you know, we've been fortunate to, to have some success and. You know, now we're thinking about how we how we keep that going over the next ten years and beyond. So, Brandon, let's unpack that a little bit. You gave us a lot to to chew on there, and and I don't want to get too far away from this sort of location based uh, element because I know, especially when it comes to ticketing, that's something that is near and dear to your heart. It, it is where I believe you started in the organization. You guys have been especially sort of around the corner, uh, looking around the corner, as it were, uh, in a very very, very much in in a leading way around ticket sales, around thinking about dynamic pricing, all of these different things. Help us understand how that fits into the business of the Warriors. Yeah, and you have it right. I started started with the Warriors in 2002 as a as a ticket sales account executive. So uh, ticket sales definitely near and dear to my heart. I think. You know, um, ticket sales are, are constantly evolving in, in, in the way tickets are sold and purchased and, and all those things. I, I think for us, um, you know, dynamic the move to dynamic pricing uh, was really, really important. The other thing that, that's been a, a big innovation in the last several years is just how the secondary market works. Yeah. You know, when we were when we were kids, the secondary market or scalpers, right, is what we used to say was, was the, the guy or, or, or woman in the parking lot that was, you know, you need to. Um, that that's what it was, and then you know StubHub was really the first company um, you know to to start creating this online marketplace, and and it's it's evolved from there because now you know like if you buy Warriors tickets on StubHub, you're, you're taking a huge fraud risk. It's not you know they're not they're not a partner of ours. Ticketmaster is our partner, and we have our own verified secondary market site that's totally safe, and that's where the vast majority of transactions uh, happen. But I think. You know what the secondary market has done, and it kind of coincides with the dynamic pricing uh, piece of the question, is provided transparency on what tickets are really worth. Because we're not 
we are, are no team or no concert or you know rights holder is setting the prices in the secondary market the fans are right so people can sell tickets wherever they want um and if they price it too high no one's going to buy them <laughs> um you know and, and and then you know the market will decide what the what the right price is so that's important for us to understand what what we should be selling tickets for because here's the reality if we don't price tickets correctly if we price tickets too high it's not good for our fans in general, but they also won't sell, um, which isn't isn't good for us and isn't good for the team because you don't you don't have sold out crowds. You know we've sold out 377 games in a row. We've got incredible fans and obviously had a good team as well. But you know they support us even in a season like last year when we didn't play as well. Um, and so and, and and if we price tickets too low, uh, fans might say go ahead, great. But but actually that's not good either because what happens is if you price tickets too low. Uh, ticket brokers come in. You know, there's professional. There's people that are watching this in every market, and they go, "There's an opportunity here. These tickets are are too cheap, and they'll buy them all, and then they'll go sell them on the secondary market uh, for what we should have been selling them for." And, and the issue is, when, when we when we sell the tickets, this is how we run our business. So that's what enables us to to pay our players, and you know, our payroll is the highest in the NBA, um, and, and allows us to build you know Chase Center. I, I mentioned a 2.1 billion dollar privately financed project. So we're investing back in the team investing in, in, in the experience of our fans, whereas if, if you know, uh, secondary market ticket brokers are, are, are making that, that profit, that's not getting reinvested in the product that, that people are interested in. Um, and then dynamic pricing is something that's interesting. I think, you know, early on people you know, didn't understand. They thought that's an opportunity to raise um, prices. And, and in certain circumstances, it is. But what, what variable pricing and dynamic pricing does is allows us to better um, price tickets for, for demand for that specific game. Mm. You know, in the old days, um, people priced tickets the same for every game. Well, it, you know, it, it, certain days of the week are worth more, certain opponents, um, certain times of year. It's no different from, you know, when you go to buy an airline ticket or you go to get a hotel room, you know, uh, times of the year, uh, day of the week, those things matter, right? I mean, if you want to go to Las Vegas, for example, near here, on a Wednesday night, you're probably going to get a cheaper hotel room than if you go on a Saturday night, right? Um, there's just more people that want to go on Saturday. So when we variably price tickets, what it actually does, we're pricing down more tickets than we're pricing up. Um, because so, so more tickets are, are below the average price than above. Um, and so what it does is, like, if you're, it allows people to kind of self-select what they're yeah. looking for. If you want the best seat in the house, for the Lakers on a Saturday night, like, and you want to sit on the floor, that's, yeah, that's going to be an expensive ticket. But if you're looking for an affordable ticket to a Warriors game, you could pick a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night and pick a, you know, a less popular opponent, someone who's having a tough year, and, and maybe sit, you know, a little bit farther from the court, and, and you're able to get a good price. So that that's, we actually think of it as being a really, uh, the goal is for it to be a really fan-friendly thing that allows people to, to kind of get what they're looking for. I want to go back to something you mentioned, the Chase Center. Uh, complex. It is the first privately financed modern sports arena. And that's important because it changes the landscape on how a sports team, if they want to build a complex, how they would raise revenue for money. Back in the day, if you wanted to raise revenue, okay, the owner would put up some of the money and then make a big pitch to the taxpayers on why chipping in is going to help. Has this changed the landscape on how sports arenas are now being built? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think time will tell. Um, I, I do think, you know, and you do have certain, you know, there's there's different variables in every situation, right? So I think you still have um, cities in America where they are using taxpayer dollars to help, you know, sports teams build 
build arenas and stadiums. And, and you know, I think that the, the, the idea is we provide so much, um, you know, economic opportunity to the regions where we play. And so, you know, the people smarter than me have to look at the numbers to see how it all fits together. What I will say is that by creating um, a district, you know, something that's more than, I don't, I, I, you can't see me, but air quotes, right, more than just an arena, um, and having having the real estate and having, you know, supporting retail and office, you know, this multi-use um, development, I do think is something that, that you have seen and will see more and more, um, just to have more diverse um, revenue streams to make these projects pencil out. Um, so I, I do think, you know, look, w- the world we live in is evolving, especially over the last year, so these things will continue to change. But I think, you know, having different ways to, um, you know, to make the financing work, to be able to support building, you know, making the investment to build arenas and stadiums, um, I do think that's a trend that you're going you're gonna to continue to see. Talk about the financial pressures and expectations of being so successful. The pressure for us really is to continue to innovate and, and do right by our fans. Um, you know, we being in the Bay Area, there's a lot of different entertainment options and a lot of different sports teams. And quite frankly, you know, sometimes you're the victim of your own success where, you know, we've had so many good years in the court. Our fans have high expectations, and they should. Um, you know, the way that they support our team, and, you know, they, they expect and really want to have a great, you know, great team, but also a compelling team and a team full of, of players that, you know, with, with character that they can really get behind, which is one of the great things about our team, you know, led by Stephen Curry, who, you know, the, the, the best compliment I think I can give Stephen Curry is he is a better person than he is a basketball player. Um, and th- this just in, he's pretty good at basketball too. <laughs> um, you know, so, but, 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 but that's really how we look at it is like, if, if we, if we do the right things, right, if we're, if we're um, successful on the court overall, you're always going to have ebbs and flows in sports. That's just the nature of it. That's what, that's what keeps us all compelled, right, is, is you, know, you never know what's going to happen. It's the best reality TV. So that's always going to ebb and flow, but we're always going to work hard to, to be great. We're going to do great things in the community, and, uh, and we're always going to think about new, innovative ways to engage with our fans and treat our fans the right way. I think, you know, one, one side I give is I've been with the Warriors since 2002, and in my early days, and people forget this, right, because everyone, it's what have you done for me lately? So everyone thinks of us as being this incredible team, which we have been. We're fortunate in that way. But when, when I started with the Warriors, we were in the middle of an 18-year span where we made the playoffs one time. And so, so the reason I bring that up is, like, when I was growing up with the team and we're talking to ticket holders, and, of course, when the team's not winning, you know, the hot dogs are cold, aren't as hot and the, the beer's not as cold. And, you know, there's, you, you just tend to, to kind of be more critical of other aspects of the experience. And, and so we just learned, like, we really had to do everything we could. We couldn't lose one customer because, you know, there wasn't someone else waiting to, to replace that person. You know, and, and today, you know, we've got 40,000 people on our season ticket wait list. So in theory, if someone's not happy, you know, whatever, it's like, okay, well, that's, you know, I feel badly, but we have somebody else. But that's just not the tact we would ever take. Like, we, we value every single one of our fans, every single one of our season ticket members. And, and, and I think that was born – I mean, it's the right thing to do, but right? But it was also born in, in that earlier era where, you know, we really had to, to take that tact because that's just, that's just where we were as an organization. And, and so we've continued a lot of those principles um, into today. So that's, that's really what we focus on. If we, if we create that experience and Chase Center was, you know, is the biggest investment you could make, um, towards that, right? Where, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the established arena that I compare it to is like a Madison Square Garden in New York where, you know, look, the Knicks haven't been good until this year, by the way. They're, they're playing really well. Um, 
But people want to go to Madison Square Garden. It's it's the mystique of MSG, and 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 they create a great experience there. You know, we people say, well, is Chase Center going to be the Madison Square Garden of the West Coast? And our joke is that eventually, we're not we're not there yet. We're brand new. We've actually been closed longer than we were open, which we hate to say, but. You know, we were open six months and then COVID hit. Um, but we want eventually Madison Square Garden to be the chase center of the East Coast. <laughs> Spoken like a true San Francisco guy. I love it. <laughs> um, so, so Brandon, you know, it's interesting thinking about the the economics of, of this sport and, and this league. I mean, you've had a front row seat, to say the least. Uh, for the growth uh, of this league, and and part of it, you alluded to the the payroll that that you guys have, the economics of the players, the economics of player movement. In in many ways, I feel like the NBA is now on the forefront of just this incredible dynamism when it comes to players moving around. You guys obviously have been very fortunate to to have some stalwart players who also happen to be some of the best in the game, leading to some real success in the court. But you've also had some other players, you know, move in and out, uh, most notably a guy who, you know, plays across the river from us in in Brooklyn right now. Um, Talk to us about how that affects the the business of of running a team, that sort of dynamism and and players moving the way that they do in today's NBA. Yeah, I think the the phenomenon that you described – um, is one of the things that makes the game more and more popular. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when you're in a situation where, you know, players don't move, it's hard for teams to get better, mm. right? Um, you know, if you're kind of stuck with the hand that you're dealt and, you, you know, you have one avenue to grow, which is, you know, really the draft, uh, which is a great avenue, by the way, really, really, really important avenue um, to improve your team. Um, you know, we're we have our, our own pick uh, this upcoming year, and, and we have the Minnesota Timberwolves pick. Uh, it's top three protected, so if they end up in the top three, we don't have it. But we should have two really good draft picks, which we're excited about. But but I think it just creates, I mean, like, you know, for basketball fans, the off season for some people, is even more exciting. I don't want to say more exciting, but as exciting as the season, yeah. right? When people get, when you get into free agency and people are like, where is player X going and where is player Y going? Um, I, I just think it, it creates so much interest and hope, right, for all these teams. I mean, look at look at a team, the, the team you alluded to in Brooklyn. Um, look at what they've done to, to transform their team in a short period of time. Um, it's awesome. Like as a as an NBA fan, you know, and we're, we look forward to, uh, you know, hopefully we'll we'll see them uh, this year in the playoffs. But even as we look ahead, and we get Clay Thompson back, and we continue to get better. You know, we love the opportunity to compete with teams like that. But I, but I think that, that that player movement makes just makes it that much more compelling for fans. And the other thing I'd say, you know, we, like everybody else, are always looking for a competitive advantage, right? So it, you mentioned us having some players, you know, that were homegrown and have been loyal. You know, Stephen Curry, um, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, we drafted all three guys, uh, and they've all been here their entire career, which is, which is pretty unique. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's incumbent upon us to, to do the things so that, players want to play here um you know we're fortunate to be in the bay area so i'm, I'm biased because i'm uh, born here in the bay area and love it here but but that's you know that only goes so far it, it's how you treat players as part of the organization right uh, every piece of it um you know to say that they have like you know we're, we're, we're we just have to script our our jerseys what jerseys we're going to wear for for playoff games we talk to the players about that i don't know do other teams do that i don't know maybe maybe not but they care and and they're an important part of who we are um, it's, it, and it's part of our DNA, and it, and it wasn't always like this um, with the Warriors. I know it's not like this with other teams, but 
our business and basketball organizations um, work really closely together. You know, we, we, everyone has their own job. Every department has their own job, but we all work for the same team. And, and so we, we just think there's in, incredible synergies um, by having those relationships, you, you, even all the way to the players. So, you know, creating, creating an environment where this is where players want to be, I think, is, is really important and, and creates, you know, that competitive advantage. You know, you mentioned you're, you're alluding to, to Mr. Durant. You know, we, we, we were so grateful for the time, you know, he was here, I mean, he was here for three years. We won two championships and, you know, fell just short against Toronto when, you know, unfortunately he got hurt and Clay got hurt and then look, take nothing away from the Raptors. They had a great team. Um, but we had three incredible years with Kevin and obviously, you know, would have loved if he would have stayed. But at the end of the day, gosh, it was like, I'll never forget. We'll never forget the, the time that he was here. Yeah. And, uh, we'll look, we'll, we'll look forward to, uh, to hopefully plan against him in the finals this year, next right. year, sometime very soon. I want to give a shout out to Rick Welts. Uh, you are replacing him as the chief operating officer. You're going from chief revenue officer to chief operating officer of the team. And it, the, that's the man you are replacing. And Rick Welts, uh, if you can just comment on him a bit, I mean, without him, we probably wouldn't have had the WNBA or the All-Star Weekend in the NBA. Can you expand more about Rick Wells? Well, I have to amend one thing you said. Uh, you mentioned that I'd be replacing uh, Rick Wells. I guess technically that's true, but nobody can replace Rick Wells. I, I, read, I read a bunch of articles, people talking about big shoes to fill. And I said, luckily we have an incredible team because – I think collectively, you know, we'll we'll be able to we'll be able to fill the shoes and continue the legacy. But no one person can replace Rick. He, he look, he's he he's an incredible guy. You know, he's been with us ten years. Was president of the Phoenix Suns before that, and before that was one of David Stern's you know right hands at the NBA. He was there for seventeen years. Um, he's um, it's so hard. It's like you know, do you have how long do you have to, to have this conversation, right? Um, you know, he, he's somebody we're so lucky to have had leading the way, and for me personally, just as a mentor and someone I've worked really closely with my entire tenure, but specifically specifically the last three or four years. And um, he's one of those people that you know he knows everybody. I've never heard anyone say a negative thing about Rick Welch. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you like, you know, you're a good person and you treat people well, but it's just, you know, you get negotiations and, you know, there's just a lot of things that happen over time and he just does everything with grace. So, I, you know, I've, I've just taken time to just watch everything he does. People are like, what did you learn from Rick? And I'm like, everything. You know, I, I, I just watch how, how he leads, right? And how he, you know, hires the right people and enables us, myself included, to do our jobs. And he's there to support and, and he's certainly engaged and, and knows the business really well, but understands that, you know, if he has to do everything and make every decision, it's probably not the most efficient way for us to be successful. Um, you know, you, you mentioned some of his innovations with, with creating All-Star Weekend and the WNBA is behind the, the marketing campaign for the original Dream Team, too. And the, that's the other one of the other big ones. But his, you know, just the, the culture that he's helped create um, here with the Warriors, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's going to be emotional. I mean, he's here another couple months, and he and I talk often. I mean, I'll, you know, so I, I just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's incredible. And, and, you know, he and I... I, I was joking with him because you know you read some of the articles that have come out since he announced that he was he was stepping away, and I, I just was like it. I was like, how it's got to be an incredible feeling, Rick, because these are the kinds of things that people don't usually get to read about themselves, right? Um, like just talking about his career and what an incredible guy he's been and all the accolades and everything he's done. But I just. Uh, 
uh, he, he's an unbelievable guy and, and, you know, someone, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate he and I will be friends, uh, forever, but I, I, and we are so grateful for everything he's done, not only for the Golden State Warriors, but for, for the NBA, for, for sports. Brandon, we had Todd Lywicki on last week, and he's obviously very excited about having the Kraken open up uh, the NHL season as an expansion team. But he made it no secret that he really covets uh, a partner with an NBA franchise. You've got an NBA team in your arena. Would that be the giant piece of the puzzle for you to someday get a National Hockey League team? Yeah, that's, it's interesting. Um, we we kick around um, you know a lot of ideas on on you know where our organization will go. Um, you know, Joe Lake of our owner likes to say Disney started as a theme park, um, which is, you know, and you think about what Disney has become today. Um, so we, we talk about a lot of different ways that our organization is going to evolve and grow, you know, in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and, and, you know, potentially being involved with another sports property or other sports properties, plural. You know, we've got a G League team, we've got esports teams, so we've got other things, um, in the mix already. I, I think, could be a possibility. Um, I don't. I don't know that there's any specific missing piece, but I think we're constantly evaluating, you know, opportunities and things that could make sense, you know, and um, as we as we continue to move forward. So, Brandon, before we let you go, got to uh, shift to one more sport, <laughs> which is Major League Soccer, and, and the business of football, especially in Europe, has drawn a lot of headlines and a lot of. Uh, uh, Sturm and Drang, as it were, from folks like us, and and certainly uh, a lot from from the fans. From where you sit as an owner of uh, LAFC and and your devotion to that team and watching that sport grow, what's the what's the state briefly of uh, of soccer slash football as you see it? I, I think um, you know so- soccer football in this country, um, the future is so bright. Um, you know, it's and being involved with LAFC, I've seen it firsthand. You know, I grew up. Um, playing soccer and 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 as we all know, um, you know in this country when you say football, people don't think of right. the football that we're talking about right now. Um, but around the world, you know, football is the biggest uh, uh, sport, and, it, and it's played with a round ball. <laughs> um, and and so I think you've seen the sport grow quite a bit. Um, and and you know, LFC, I'm, I'm biased, but I think you know has been. Um, you know, on the cutting edge of some of these things, right? Early on, you know, people looked at MLS and, and thought, you know, the only stars that come are the aging stars in the back end of their career. And, and you know, we brought in, you know, younger designated players, you know, Carlos Vela being the MVP of the league a couple years ago, uh, came over in his prime from Mexico. Diego Rossi, another young player that, that came over from Uruguay. So we, we've got, you know, our... our our star, you know, designated players are all kind of young, either in their prime or heading into their prime. Um, but I think, so I think you've seen incredible growth. There's a long way to go, um, you know, and, and it's it's the quality of play, you know, because if you, if you look right now, uh, the NBA is the best basketball league in the world. The NFL is the best football league in the world. You know, same for NHL, same for Major League Baseball. And MLS isn't yet. Um, you know, you've got you've got other leagues, and you know, the EPL being one. You know, in Europe um, that have been at it for longer, and 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 you know, have been have seen higher quality of play, right? And so, so that's that's one piece of it. Um, and then it's you know, it's 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 growing the game, growing the brand, you know, growing television viewership and and partners and and all of those things. You know, I think with the World Cup coming here in the next several years, that always brings, uh, well, the World Cup in general brings a lot of interest to, to soccer here in this country, but but especially as we'll be hosting it, um, you know, we, we and I and we see that as a as a huge opportunity. So I, I think, you know, as you think about um, sports going forward, and, and you're going to see my bias here, but, but the two most global sports or games in the world are, are soccer and basketball. Um, and, 
you know, as this world, you know, with social media and technology and everything that's, that's evolving at, a, at such a rapid rate, the world's getting smaller in a lot of ways. And so those, that, that, that glo- those global roots that have been um, planted, um, I think, are going to be are going to be really, really important. So I think, you know, as you think about um, sports leagues on the on the come, as they would say, on their way up, I think MLS is is very high on that list. Well, Brandon, it's been great spending some time with you. Thank you so much. Uh, We know it's a very busy time as you look ahead uh, to the playoffs. Best of luck uh, there. We'll all be uh, rooting for you guys. It it is the most wonderful time of the year when it comes to the NBA because it gets real, real fast, uh, as you know, uh, better than we do. And and I know this season has been an interesting one, uh, to say the least, but you guys have, have scrapped your way into it, it looks like. And, uh, you know, when the playoffs start, it, it all starts from scratch, right? Yeah, there's no question. It's very well said. It is it is the best time of the year, and we're looking forward to the new play-in tournament. We are first time involved in that this year, and then hopefully moving on to the playoffs and, and making some noise. But but uh, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys having me on. Guys, it's interesting to talk about the Warriors because, you know, for a long time it was a nice little franchise that nobody paid that much attention to. Obviously, of late, it has become one of the franchises. We mentioned it earlier this week. It's one of the most valuable across the NBA and across all of sports. To me, this is a story. I sound like a Harvard Business School you know, case study author here. This is a story of innovation in, in many ways and figuring out how to make money from a winning team, Lynching. You know, what I found interesting is that he told me that the price of a ticket is different almost every single night. It depends yeah. on the date, the night of the week, the opponent. Um, he says, and they've done more pricing They've priced more tickets down than they have priced tickets up, and they have a 40,000, 40,000 person waiting list for a season ticket. You know, you go back to the days, he, he told us in the, in the interview, they went 18 years where they made the playoffs just one year. And look at them right now. They're more valuable, according to Forbes, than the Los Angeles Lakers. And so, Barr, you know, when you look at a franchise like this, I mean, clearly part of it is built around the players. I mean, Steph Curry will be in the conversation as one of the is in the conversation and should be in the conversation is one of the greatest players ever to play the game he revolutionized it in many ways let's be honest some of this is not possible if you don't have that cocktail of great players winning a pretty affluent fan base i mean it all sort of comes together here for the warriors and i said i have said this earlier if you are a star player and you're bringing in the money like a steph curry or a LeBron James, for that matter, you're doggone right. You're going to pay me because I'm helping you and your club bring in a lot of dollars. And another thing I liked when we were talking to Brandon, uh, he's going to replace Rick Welts uh, when he is the incoming president and COO. And the thing I like that Brandon said you don't replace Brandon Wilts. It's like, you know, you have a whole team. And you're talking about a guy who helped create the WNBA. He helped create the All-Star Weekend. This man has been a huge innovator for the NBA. Uh, And like Brandon Schneider said, you know, yes, there's that old cliche, big shoes to fill, but they are. And uh, Brandon Schneider paid top tribute to Rick Wells. Yeah, interesting to see what happens with this uh, franchise as they move forward. You know, as we get into the playoffs, 
um, you know, we'll know by early next week, you know, where they where they fall uh, in terms of what they have ahead of them. But certainly don't sleep on this team. And, you know, the economics, there's just a lot of upside for this franchise. I also uh, liked what you said, you know, you can listen to the whole interview via podcast about, you know, some expansion of their ambitions, uh, having this amazing facility by all accounts that hasn't seen much action, candidly. I mean, it shut down uh, only after six months of operation because of the pandemic, but uh, the 21-22 season will be a real test in in a great way of, of a lot of people seeing what the Warriors can do at their new home in San Francisco. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. It's time for the number of the week. Here we go. All right. And Mm. let me set this up here. Now, the uh, International Olympic Committee. They are inaugurating the first Olympic virtual series. It's kicking off more than a month of competitive play across video game simulations, baseball, rowing, sailing, cycling, and motorsport. Now, I bring it up because eSports is very popular. And uh, Valve's Dota 2, they host an annual championship with eSports with a fan-funded prize pool. Now, what I'm looking for this year what is that prize pool going to exceed? All right, we know esports is big. I'm gonna say ten million. Oh, that was my number. All right, I'm gonna go um, nine million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand <laughs> and ninety-nine cents. You know what, Lynchy? You mess yourself up because <laughs> it's way higher 10 than ten million. More. <laughs> it's way higher. It than is, and I was surprised when I read this. That prize pool is going to exceed forty million dollars. What this year? Really? Okay, hold on. I I got to figure out what the hell this thing is. That is crazy. <laughs> it, it is. It is huge. Forty million dollars. Yeah. This is. I. I'm just. I was shocked when I when I saw that figure. I'm like, oh my goodness. Just some comparison here to show you that this is really knocking on the door of the biggest sporting events in the world. The U.S. Open Tennis Tournament, heard of it, takes place and will again take place, good Lord willing, uh, in Queens, New York this year. Total player compensation, according to USOpen.org, $53 million. This is huge, guys. E-sports. So this thing that I've never heard of, and which is not saying much, but like, <laughs> is is really knocking on the door. The esports, that's crazy. That's crazy. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a good number of the week, and we, you know, we both like mildly embarrassed ourselves, Lindsay, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Lifelong learners. All right. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. That's also where you can hear extended versions of the interviews like you heard today with Suzanne Hebert and Brandon Schneider. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm just still scratching my head in bewilderment. I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. Good job, Big Bar. (laughs) I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg (laughs) Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.